Elaine Power is a professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies and the current head of the Department of Gender Studies at Queen's University. She's also the co-founder of the Kingston Action Group for a Basic Income Guarantee. In this episode, she discusses the challenge of incorporating feminist perspectives into the relatively new field of food studies and the goal of making the field inherently feminist by working to appreciate the central importance of power differentials in determining who has the privilege of indulging in food and who suffers the indignity of food insecurity. If capitalism creates, as she says, the conditions for this most intimate experience of eating food to be debasing, then clearly we need legal reforms like a guaranteed basic income to shield people put in an impossible economic position from the harm produced by an industrialized and unequal food system. She also expresses a measured hope that the COVID-19 pandemic is creating the conditions for more empathy to emerge in political discourse, which, she points out, is the only way toward a more humanitarian future. Uh, I wanted to start with um, the article you wrote um, which I think is co-written called filling our plate, a spotlight on feminist food studies, because this, this methodology is what particularly interests me. Um, you, you write in that article, doing food scholarship has often meant further marginalizing oneself from academic and or feminist communities that did not value food as an object of research or theorization. And you also um, note that the uptake of feminist perspectives in addressing the scholarship concerns and conversations taking place within Canadian food studies has been limited. Um, why do you think that this is maybe a particular pro- particular problem in Canadian food studies? Do you see it shifting and what would it take um, for a shift in food studies uh, to properly incorporate feminism? So, you know, when food studies is a relatively new field of academic inquiry, um, you know, I think you could probably date it to the mid 90s. And when, you know, the 1970s, the, the second wave feminists really, many of them tried really hard to, to get away from the home and the kitchen and anything domestic. And so when some of the early, um, you know, I think about uh, Arlene Avakian, who wrote a book, um, I think in the early 90s, you know, through the through the kitchen window, and she contacted feminists to to ask them if they would contribute um, stories about food. And many of them um, were quite rude to her <laughs> in response because they were working really hard to get away from the kitchen. And so that's really contributed to the marginalization of food. I mean, food it seems so. Perverse. I guess it's not um, uncommon that capitalism kind of takes the most, you know, intimate and um, most important aspects of our lives uh, and uh, debases and devalues them. But you know, we, I mean, it's it just sounds so banal to say, you know, we can't live without food, and you know, food is nutrients, but it's also symbolic, and you know, all of the rest. But um, you know, it's also very invisible. And the work that uh, people do to put food on the table, whether it's the the migrant farm workers or the grocery store clerks or the, the people in the household, which usually women, who put food on the table, is it's invisible and it's devalued and it's marginalized. So, you know, I think feminists... Um, in the particularly from the last century, second wave feminists who 
didn't want to be associated with that. And so, um, you know, we also have in food studies um, a much stronger focus, I would say, on the production aspect of food, you know, the food system, agriculture, and so on. And that tends to be dominated by men who don't always pay attention um, to some of whom are feminists and some, many of whom are not. So they don't necessarily pay attention to the intersections of gender and race and class and so on. And so I think that's what we envision for a feminist food studies. We hope that at some point that's, um, you know, that, that food studies will be inherently feminist by paying attention to those power differentials rather than needing uh, an extra adjective at the front. (laughs) Of course, yeah, and and speaks to I think this this next question I was going to ask about how we move toward um, a maybe more utopian vision uh, by thinking about food uh, by you know not just thinking about food as something that we eat but thinking about food as something that we cultivate and dis- uh, and distribute and so on. As you say, there's so much work required, so much labor, um, and so a feminist perspective, but perhaps also a Marxist feminist perspective, allows you to bring all of these issues together, issues of inequality, disenfranchisement, and labor. Um, in, in the article, uh, the invisible or the visible and invisible occupations of food provisioning in low-income families that you co-wrote um, with two other scholars, um, you, you address so many of these kinds of issues. It, it really stood out to me as a, a remarkably dense piece of research uh, in all the best ways. You say, for example, you know, just statistically over the past two decades, 10 to 20% of Canadians have consistently fallen below federally established low income cutoff. You say, not surprisingly, over 12% of Canadian households experience food insecurity, lacking the resources uh, to provide the food they need, with 34% of lone parents facing food insecurity. I wanted to um, ask about your recent appearance on another podcast, In the Loop, with Mark Gerritsen, where you talk about uh, where you talk about um, basic income and how you, and this is interesting to me, how you kind of you don't choose to support universal basic and in, basic income because the downside, as you put it, is the upfront cost of implementing it and the fact you know that the wealthy have many ways of avoiding paying taxes. What you argue for, and 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 this is where I want to kind of take it, is is for a more practical model of a potentially more utopian or at least very more fair society you know, um, where there is a more strategic distribution of basic income. And, and you know, for example, that we shouldn't see the idea of a basic income as radical. Why was it important to emphasize that point, to correct, as it were, the tendency to represent this idea, especially during a pandemic, as radical? Is it just about sort of tactics, um, you know, uh, rhetorical tactics, but also political tactics to, to kind of get this pushed forward? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so I think it's all of those. I think there is a you know a political tactic. I don't actually. I mean, I think basic income has the potential to be radical. Um, on the other hand, you know, way back in nineteen forty nine, Canada or sorry, nineteen forty eight, Canada signed the the Universal um, uh, Declaration of on Human Rights that. Uh, that said that everyone has a right to an adequate standard of living. Um, and I think to our ears that are so accustomed, you know, to 40 years of government cutbacks and government being a bad thing and tax and taxation being a bad thing, 
that there's a way in which that does sound kind of radical. Everyone is, you know, entitled to the uh, right to, uh, to a basic standard of living, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> really, like, you like what for what purpose? What purpose are our lives if not to look after each other? I mean, I think this endless pursuit of profit and the veneration of people who make a lot of money is again it's a perversion it's like whoa, 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 what what does that accomplish it's destroying the planet and we're destroying ourselves in the process so there's a way in which i think you know if we can assure as a society just assure the kind of basic necessities of life nothing extravagant like 22 20 or $22,000 a year is not going to give you an extravagant life. Um, it, it will allow you to have some sense of, you know, dignity and belonging in our society. Um, you can, if you're not living in Toronto or Vancouver, you can put a roof over your head and food on the table. Um, and, and then, you know, consider what you want to do with your life and who you want to be and the best person that you can be without the kind of uh, mad, desperate um, sense that, you know, if you don't get a job, any job, just something to put food on the table, then, you know, you're, you're going to, um, you might die. I mean, really, when it comes right down to it, or, you know, you'll land on social assistance, which is just barely staying alive with the amount of money that we allow. So I see basic income as what we owe each other, much as, as Medicare, you know, we don't all use Medicare all the time. It's there when we need it. If we had a basic income program that, like Medicare that allowed people to access the program when they need it, um, we could erase a lot of the insecurity, the anxiety and the insecurity. And that I think is where the potential for basic income to be radical comes in. Because if, I mean, it, maybe I am, idealistic and naive, but I, I think it will allow people to kind of step back and think about, as I say, who they want to be and the kind of world they want to live in. And I don't, I mean, there always guess there'll always be people who are, um, as my dad would say, chasing the almighty dollar. But, um, you know, for lots of other people, they um, would be satisfied with a simpler kind of life. Mm -hmm. I think you have a real skill for making these ideas sort of um, relatable and bridgeable. There's a way in which, you know, at attacking the roots of a capitalist system that punishes the poor can sometimes alienate particular listeners. But on that um, podcast, you speak with Mark Erickson about how these ideas are, are really 19th century moral values, uh, assumptions that tell us that without the motivation of trying to survive, people will just stop working. Um, but you have a, as I say, kind of a skillful way of um, addressing the, these kind of core capitalist beliefs and values. But, you, you know, you spoke to that question of sort of like uh, the pursuit of the almighty dollar or hoarding wealth. You know, I wanted to maybe ask about the notion of a guaranteed like maximum income or a tax on the wealthy, right? Um, you know, are these ideas at this point too radical to be bridgeable? Or do you sense that, um, you know, Bezos, Jeff Bezos being on track to have a trillion dollars by, you know, whatever the projection is, um, is starting to actually create a sense that, you know, that is a dystopian future. I mean, at some point, do you expect it might be possible to be less strategic and more utopian in advocating for a more humanitarian, equal food system? 
Uh, well, yes is the short answer. Thank you for your compliments. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think I, I maybe it was years of teaching a first-year course <laughs> on the social determinants of health that has helped me put, you know, complex ideas into language that's accessible. I don't know. But um, I think, you know, that podcast that you reference has really become quite popular and I, people have told me that it's because it is accessible. So. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little, I'm very suspicious of polls because, of course, the answers depend on how the questions are framed. But, you know, I did see a poll recently that suggested that Canadians are, you know, most Canadians are in favour of a wealth tax to help um, pay for, um, you know, social programs. Um, I think this is one of the silver linings of COVID. You know, it's, um, it, you know, as devastating as it has been, there have been silver linings, and one of them is to, again, give us an opportunity to stop and think about what's important. And, you know, remarkably, we decided, or the government decided, you know, our, we're supposed to be our representatives, that, um, you know, human life was more important than the economy. And that's a bit remarkable when you think about the last 40 years and the ways in which human life has been devalued in favor of you know, capitalist, the pursuit of profit. Um, so uh, again, I think this is, um, you know, we deserve better politicians who would actually provide more leadership on uh, engaging some of these questions and, um, you know, kind of raising their gaze away from, you know, the bottom line and taxes and thinking again about, you know, what kind of, what kind of country do we want? What kind of society do we want? You know, the, the Jeff Bezos of the world and the, you know, the millionaires in Canada who make that money um, profiting on other people's labor. I think, um, you know, there's a, we know, we can see really clearly that in the, these inequalities are um, reinforcing themselves and getting larger and larger without government intervention they'll just continue to grow. Um, so this is a place where government could provide leadership. And I'm, I, I hope if, you know, if we push enough that tax reform, more progressive, our tax system has gotten progressively, progressively less progressive, you know, over the years, it, um, it favors what the wealthy um, and it favors corporations over individual Canadians. And I'm, I hope that the next stage in our um, recovery from COVID, although, you know, we're still in the thick of it, is a, is a really robust and sophisticated adult conversation about tax reform that en enables us to look again, to look after each other as I think we should. Mm hmm. I like that you you speak to the kind of um, ambivalent, as it were, kind of importance of polling and uh, data. It's it's helpful. Uh, for example, you know the fact that uh, the the global protests against police brutality are, are obviously effective, if for no other reason than you can see public opinion is now exponentially increasing in favor of Black Lives Matter in just the last couple of weeks. So obviously, protests work, and the data kind of bears that out. Um, this is something that you've talked about in relationship to food in general, kind of in a different context, in a policy context. Um, you know, you you note, for example, in an article that uh, for the first time, Ontario has opted out of measuring food insecurity um, on the 2015 Canadian Community Health Survey. 
cycle, which leaves, as you say, a gaping hole in public health researchers' ability to assess the impact of public policies. I wanted to ask about the importance of data, of having current sociological data in determining who is at risk and being able to kind of see the landscape. Um, you know, how do we understand uh, um, the importance of data for you know providing advocates, activists, and research uh, researchers a sense of how to act? I mean, and and I guess also the question I would ask is why why um, opt out? I mean, is it just about the neoliberal ideology of a free market fundamentalism at work? Do we just not want to acknowledge the importance of poverty as a determinant of health? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, data and real data, real evidence like um, that's well um, collected, of course, is critical. It's so important for for a government and for advocates, as you say. But but if a government is truly interested in making change and assessing their, you know, how their policies are affecting um, people and um, on the ground, then of course they need data. I mean, we live. I mean, we live in this bizarre world where, you know, particularly on the right, there's like, data doesn't count for anything because it's really just about ideology. There's a little bit less of that, I would say, um, you know, certainly um, on the on the left or in the center. But, um, you know, we don't know why that uh, decision was made in Ontario. That was under Kathleen Wynne, under the liberal government of Kathleen Wynne that decision was made to not collect the data about household food insecurity. So the Canadian Community Community Health Survey, or CCHS, is an ongoing survey that's run by Stats Canada, and it's in two-year cycles. And so in some years, the federal government um, uh, makes it mandatory that all provinces ask about food insecurity, um, and in other years, provinces are allowed to opt out. So for the first time ever, Ontario opted out into the 2015-2016 cycle. Um, and, the, and Ontario constitutes almost 40% of the Canadian population. So that blows a huge hole, not just in understanding what's happening in Ontario, but also across the country in terms of you know, the, the robustness of the data. So, you know, a cynical view of that decision is that uh, the Ontario government knew that the results would be coming out around the time of the provincial election. And perhaps they were confident that it was going to show, you know, um, progress in meeting their um, uh, poverty reduction targets. Uh, A less cynical view is that uh, the bureaucracy, the civil servants, has been so um, decimated that uh, they just didn't understand the importance of it. <laughs> um, so it, it doesn't, you know, whatever, however the decision was made, um, whether it was deliberate and trying to cover something up or whether it was ineptitude, it's not very flattering <laughs> either way. Um so, but data, yeah, absolutely. We need data. And right now, I mean, the, as I understand it, at least the, you know, the Canadian Community Health Survey has been suspended at this time of COVID, which, uh, you know, again, is devastating in terms of thinking about the impacts of this particular moment on, on the health of Canadians and Canadian communities. 
And one of the reasons why I wanted to speak to you is because the kind of data that you collect and that you analyze, qualitative data, highly detailed data, is is you know particularly I think um, you know capable of communicating the particular struggle that especially people on the margins have. Um, in the article that I mentioned, the visible and invisible occupations of food provisioning, you you say, you know, uh, you talk about data, you say, while evidence is amassing regarding the prevalence of food insecurity and related health consequences, we have that data, you say, uh, few analyses explore firsthand experiences of food insecurity. And this is where, I guess, qualitative investigation comes in. Um, you, you talk in that article about how, in particular, low-income mothers describe their lives as a constant struggle. In another article, Cultural and Symbolic Capital with and Without Economic Constraint, um, you compare low-income and high-income Canadian families and talk about the level of stress that is associated with shopping on a low income, um, right? One respondent says, I think about food constantly, every single day. You describe this as a relentless everyday stress why is it important that we see the stress involved in the everyday work of, of getting and preparing food? Are these things, to your mind, typically invisibilized? I mean, the culture around food, when we look to popular representations, you know, don't tend to give us a sense of these aspects of the experience, the stress and the work of it. Well, you know, um, I think just as a matter of basic human compassion that we 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 ought to care about the incredible um, stress and the terrible decisions that parents in particular, mothers in particular have to face about, you know, whether they're going to eat themselves or, you know, get a birthday present for their kid. The kind of indignity, the indignities that low-income families face every day is um, I I just think it's devastating, and it's a, to me it's symbolic of a society that just doesn't care about it, about human beings anymore. Um, and so yes, that that work is invisible. Um, it's also I mean from a more um, I don't know instrumental perspective, if you want to think about it that way, we it has profound effects on uh, healthcare expenses. You know, when you live in that kind of constant stress, uh, it has a terribly damaging effect on health. And we know from a, you know, a, at a microscopic level, it actually, it literally affects our DNA and how long we live. We, you know, there's evidence from DNA studies that uh, as the DNA replicates, it, um, it the, what's called the telomeres actually shorten when you're living in chronic stress, whether that's stress of poverty or maybe the stress of having a child with a disability, you know, profound disability. And if you have both of those together, your lifespan is likely to be shortened, um, let alone on the stress, but also the poor nutrition, because you know, which also exacerbates the effects of the stress because you don't have actually the proper nutrition, the antioxidants that you need that would help your physiologically help your body to cope with the stress. So if there's actually really good data, um, Val Teresak at the University of Toronto, who is uh, kind of the guru of uh, certainly statistical scholarly studies, research on this problem. She's has a very elegant piece of work that shows that as, as the household food insecurity 
in, uh, increases. So as people get more are, are more poor and have less access to food, that healthcare costs go up dramatically. Um, so, you know, from an instrumental point of view, if I were uh, in a government position, if I were the health minister, I'd be looking at that and saying, "Oh my, this is <laughs> you know, poverty has a big impact on our on healthcare costs." You know, if we uh, actually address the poverty healthcare costs would go down probably at least 20% of our healthcare costs are related directly to poverty that's the Canadian Medical Association has estimated that um, I mean that in and of itself is reason to address this but you know I think the more to me, my mind the more important issue is actually um, people's ability to live in dignity and to feel like they belong in our society and, and so much of your work is about sort of trying to unpack the entrenched assumptions that, you know, pr- reproduce these kinds of class divisions, um, you know, that have everything to do with economics, but also have these kind of larger uh, or, or rather kind of deeper origins. And, you know, it, it, I, I, I could speak to my own personal experience of growing up in like a working class household where there was a level of suspicion toward organic foods, premium items, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and a tendency toward convenience due to a large family size. You know, you talk in one article about the embarrassment of having to put items back or account change at the register. That's, you know, something I've experienced and, and it's it's painful. I think encouraging empathy for this situation is so crucial. Um, and this is what, you know, your work tends to do is kind of bring this data to life. You gesture, for example, to alternative discourses that may be employed to resist stigma and discourses that challenge dominant constructions of people living in poverty. Um, what would you say these are? I mean, you've kind of just addressed some of them. Um, but yeah, where can we look for a, a corrective to the kind of neoliberal ethos of the failed consumer? Well, I think, you know, again, that this is maybe a part of the silver lining of COVID. All of a sudden, you have literally millions of people who've lost their job for no, you know, no fault of their own, who suddenly have that experience of maybe staying awake all night wondering, you know, where the next meal is going to come from, or how they're going to juggle all the bills, um, maybe having to go to a food bank. Um, You know, but I guess... um, Part of the issue is the, the again the hierarchy and the value that we place on consumption and excess. You know the kind of decadence that we see. Um, you know that's glorified. So, you know if we imagine, I think about you know the West Coast Indigenous peoples who, you know their sign of status was how much you could give away to other people. Right? It wasn't about accumulating. It was about um, you know, if you if you're high status, you give everything away. Um, you know, if we had a society that valued uh, what people like, people who contribute, who actually contribute all that they could, rather than um, you know accumulating more and more, that would turn that upside down. I think um, you know, if we had an ethos of you know, can we make the world can we can we contribute more than we've been given? <laughs> um, can we add back rather than taking and always taking? Um, so I, you know, my one of the one of the again perverse effects I think of this veneration of wealth is that if you're a working from a working class family and you've you know 
you watched your parents or you are you know busting your busting your self to you know hustle and put you know to get that food on the table then it's actually easy to look to people on social assistance or on ei who are unemployed and say you know you're you're lazy because it because you're so close to it that and it's so stigmatized that it you want to distance yourself from you know the quote unquote lazy bums um uh, so I, I worry about that because it's um, and I, I, I understand that, you know, especially if you're one step above the lowest rung, then uh, you want to get a, you want to distance yourself from that stigmatized group. But I see that as an effect of of the larger society rather than, you know, blaming working class folks for saying, you know, I, I'm not going to support those lazy bums with a basic income. I think so. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, uh, I think we could connect it to some of the kinds of stereotyping and projection um, that's directed at, um, you know, indigenous communities. Uh, in one of your articles uh, titled Aboriginal isn't just about what was before, it's what's happening now. You talk about perspectives on indigenous peoples and how the notion that, um, you know, uh, the diets of indigenous people primarily are traditional is, is just false. Um, and, and having a deeper understanding of this, not just projecting, um, is, is part of, as you say, the difficult work of reconciliation, of coming to know each other and living in a mutually respectful um, relationship. So not just necessarily romantic, romanticizing, deifying, but actually trying to know in, in deeper ways what's happening is part of the key um, thing here. And, and, and to kind of maybe get back to um, that, that question of decadence, you know, you note in cultural and symbolic capital um, that the elitism of ethical eating is actually declining as a source of cultural capital, which is a curious fact, something that maybe people don't think is, is the case. But instead, you say um, when cultural knowledge forms and practices like healthy eating and ethical eating become widespread, even among low income shoppers, they've, they lose their symbolic capital and don't garner the same level of distinction. And instead, now you have this troubling resurgence, maybe, of a certain kind of decadence, right? A means of marking distinction through food quality and authenticity, and maybe even certain kinds of convenience, but like a, a curated, cultivated kind of convenience. I wanted to note the also the emergence of skip the dishes, Uber Eats, as potential markers of status. Have you thought through the sudden prominence of these services, or maybe even like for me, interrogated that brand name, Skip the Dishes, a, a banner that kind of signifies a complete embrace of convenience and abandonment of prior forms of cultural capital um, that was sort of associated with preparing food. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, the skip. So I, you know, it's one of the one of the features of our contemporary world, I think, is polarization. And you know, on the one hand, we have the skip the dishes phenomena. And on the other hand, you know, in COVID time, we have the veneration of sourdough, <laughs> you know, everyone at home making sourdough bread and kind of, you know, posting uh, photos on, you know, social media of their various creations. And also the, you know, the, the rush to plant to garden again you know to put food in which you know everyone's kind of thinking they're going to be hanging around home so on the on you know on the one hand we have um 
you know, people engaging more. And, and I'm, I have no evidence for this, but there's probably, I'm sure there's a class component of that as well. And, and not just um, in terms of socioeconomic, but probably, you know, cultural, cu- cultural capital as well. You know, people with, who have education, who also have the income to be able now, you know, at home, <laughs> cultivating their sourdough starter <laughs> and their tomato plants. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, again, we, we, there's this incredible polarization and the people who are, you know, the, all of a sudden we have these people like the grocery store cashiers who are poorly paid and have no benefits and don't have, you know, full-time jobs, but suddenly they're, they're our heroes. Uh, I, I mean, I would, I would love to, to send Skip the Dishes to some of those folks who are, you know, working long hard hours at the grocery store. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is. So I, I don't really know if I have anything more coherent to say about it, except that it, it, it seems like another sign of this polarization. And um, yeah, that seems to be one of the features of our society that kind of there's nothing in between, it seems. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, definitely, I think we're seeing further, like you've, you've noted some of the silver linings with the coronavirus pandemic, but I think we're also, of course, seeing further stratification and you've kind of just, you know, um, pointed to some of the, uh, the sources of that, um, you know, given how much your research reveals the length, for example, that higher income people will go to actually avoid spaces of consumption that they perceive as less clean, for example, than others, do you do you think that the fear not only of contagion, but in a sense of lower income people is determining buying habits? And what does this say about um, the, the polarization, the level of inequality in contemporary society? You know, our food system, I mean, I'm not, that's not my area of expertise, but it, it, again, the, the virus has shown us on so many levels, this, um, the way we've created um, a food system that is industrialized and dominated by a very few, you know, very large um, multinational corporations. Um, it's again seems like another sign of the failure of capitalism and the ways it is leading us to the edge of self-destruction environmentally, you know, and also just in the way it uses up people's lives. You know, I was in I was in a local chain grocery store in Loblaws, um, just as the pandemic was, you know, as the measures to shut things down were starting like mid-March. And um, I managed to find um, some uh, a, a product that claimed to, you know, disinfect, but also keep, uh, you know, to stay on the surface for 24 hours, heaven knows what's in it. But um, the cashier was examined, this Loblaws cashier was examining it very closely. And I, 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 she asked where I found it. It must have, the shipment had, must have just come in because there were a number of items on the shelf. And uh, it turns out, he, here she is, she's, a, you know, a woman probably maybe in her mid 50s, looking at this can of um, um, disinfectant, and she's on chemotherapy. Um, in the midst of a you know a pandemic, and I it 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 just stayed with me that way the way in which you know people are forced against their own best interests to work at these jobs because they have no other option. Who in their if I, if if you had any 
other option. Who would be working at a grocery store? This was before the plastic shields went up. But even with those, if you were immunocompromised from chemotherapy, it just blows my mind. It, and it's, 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 it's horrible. Yeah. And I think this is, again, what I find so valuable about your work. It's trying to make visible some of these generally invisibilized things. And, and you know, the, the point that you make in that, in the article that I mentioned a few times, um, that uses this language of the visible and invisible, you talk about how food provisioning is so commonplace, so mundane that it is easily taken for granted. It is, as it were, the quintessential consumable, right? And that we actually consume it. And, and so I guess the question becomes, does thinking more deeply about food get us somewhere, um, you know, more critical, more mo- mobilized? I mean, um, you, you talk, for example, in uh, your Cultural and Symbolic Capital article about how even things like a, a shopping from a grocery list uh, are not universal across all classes, these like everyday habits. Um, you know, what does focusing on these often automatic habits on the specific meaning attached to eating well, you know, doing a good job of feeding oneself and one's family give us in terms of a critical methodology? Um, is there a way in which we tend to forget that eating provides a lot more than just sustenance? It provides a sense of solace and meaning um, and involves all of these invisibilized forms of labor. I think about, um, you know, the people who who take completely for granted the food that appears on the table, you know, it's not, it's often in a heterosexual couple, it's often the man, not always. In fact, there was a really interesting study quite a few years ago now about, you know, domestic labor in um, same sex households that replicated what, you know, the, the research from um, heterosexual households that, you know, there's one person who takes primary responsibility for the food work and the food, you know, the provisioning and all the invisible, all the invisible labor. Um, and then the other person just has, doesn't have a clue, <laughs> um, you know, just takes it for granted. And uh, even in, in same sex, so it's not, uh, you know, clearly, I, mean, I don't, I, I wonder if, how many households where there is a you know a real true division of labor and maybe that's not important i don't know but i also wonder if because people are have been at home for the last you know 13 14 weeks if some of that labor has become visible certainly the labor of childcare and the labor of um, food provisioning you know we have to think a lot more about our grocery shopping and um, you know thinking ahead about um, putting food on the table. It's not as easy as it used to be to just dash out um, to pick up a few things at the grocery store. Although, as you mentioned, there is the skip the dishes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, some of that labor maybe has become more visible in the in this moment. And also the kind of the, you know, as you say, the comfort aspect of food. You know, people I think are in these times of when everyone is feeling, you know, some level of stress more or distress, some more than others, but we've, I think, many of us have turned to comfort foods um, 
to soothe some of that anxiety. I think, you know, <laughs> I'm sure we were talking at the beginning about obesity. I think, you know, the, the uh, anti-obesity uh, public health folks are probably going a bit berserk with <laughs> anticipating a massive jump in the BMIs in the, in the country. But, um, you know, I, I do wonder if, the, if at this moment, um, you know, some of that invisible labor has become more visible than it used to be. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, you know, personally a lot of thoughts on uh, the politics of obesity, but, um, you know, I want to maybe just gesture to one piece of the article, uh, the chapter that you wrote for Neoliberal Governance and Health on Childhood Obesity, where you talk about um, whole foods and how it's really the the kind of like perfect fix for virtuous consumption, the decadence and the, you know, the kind of distinction that comes from, you know, uh, shopping in this particular place. Um, you, you, you write in that article about how, um, you know, the, the duty of a good virtuous, I'm quoting you, uh, neoliberal consumer citizen is to know how to make proper responsible choices in the marketplace and to exercise restraint and responsibility in that freedom of choice, a disciplined, responsibilized freedom that is nonetheless associated with fun and pleasure. Um, what I like is that in this in this piece, rather than attributing it to just an exploitative corporate conspiracy to kind of harness our desire to purchase pleasurable food that also distinguishes us, your work focuses on the prior ideological shifts that potentiated things like Whole Foods um, and tries to articulate a more kind of complex form of resistance, I think, that makes people self-aware about the structure that they're ensnared in, basically. Um, and, and, and my last question, because you've given me uh, quite a bit of your time, has to do with um, uh, the consumption of animals, actually, and, the, and the, the work that you did alongside Samantha King, whose work I, I think is incredible on the politics of breast cancer, um, awareness and activism, uh, R. Scott Carey, uh, Victoria Niva, uh, so many people. Like This is, this is a work that uh, a, a piece, a book that I think everyone should look at called Messy Eating, Conversations on Animals as Food. Part of the goal of that book is to move beyond the somewhat simplistic tactic of shaming meat eaters, in, encouraging this kind of digestive dissonance, as John uh, Mualem calls it, the repulsion felt toward the act of eating animals, which you, you sort of say collaboratively is a limited position from which to start articulating a politics of ethical eating. Um there's this powerful idea that that speaks to the importance of trying to see things structurally, where um, you talk about how it's a limited tactic to just go vegan when you exist in an advanced factory farming system that is industrialized. So like while Apricot Lane Farms gets lionized in the documentary, The Biggest, the biggest Little Farm, you know, most of us are still left ensnared by the system. Um can you can you speak to what the kind of key insight was that you took away from collaborating on this incredibly inter- interdisciplinary text? I mean, um, yeah, how, how did you, what did you learn from studying the the convergence of this kind of uh, critical animal studies literature and the kind of politics of consuming animals themselves? To me, it's all summed up in the title, "Messy Eating." It's so com- so complicated, and um, uh, it. Um, you know, I played a small role in that book, but I, if I remember correctly, the title, the, that was actually my idea. And it, it, to me, it encapsulates this whole, the message. The, if, if you stop to think about the ethics of eating and how to 
you know, eat ethically. Um, well, I don't know that there actually is such a thing. The only, the only, um, the only food that I can eat with a completely clear conscience is the food that I grow in my backyard. You know, which is a fairly limited amount of my annual, um, you know, intake. Um, but uh, you know, the this idea, like, there is no innocent, there is no innocent position, and so I think, you know, again, we, you know, we have this, um, we seem to want, and I understand it, we want clarity, we want black and white, we want to have a moral, like a solid moral position, especially if you start to think about it. But we, there is none, we, we really have to learn, I think, as uh, to be more comfortable with the messiness and the grayness. And, um, you know, we, we seem to have this desire to fit ourselves into a category and then you know moralize about everybody else and that's whether whether it's you know moralizing about poor people or moralizing about people who eat animals or people who eat so-called junk food you know it's it makes us feel better about ourselves to put other people put other people down and again that seems to be um a function of the way the kind of hierarchy hierarchical society that we live in and um if I hope that this is one of the things we can start to tackle collectively to realize that, you know, we're all, we're all just doing our best and um, there is no us and them. Um, thanks so much, Elaine. Uh, I know you have other things to get to. I really appreciate you making the time. Oh, this has been such a pleasure. And it really, I really feel quite honored that you spent so much time um, finding and reading some of the things that I've written.